Welcome to No Cartridge Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbon on Twitter, and I'm here with, uh, I think, everyone's uh, everyone's friend uh, and and co-host of the uh, the Podside Picnic Endeavor, uh, the podcast that uh, that I've mentioned probably a million times on here, hopefully more than that. Uh, Mister Mister Connor Southerd. Hi, hey man, how's it going? Hey Trev, uh, I want to call you out here a little bit. First of all, I will say thank you for having me on. Well, yeah, and of course. And second of all, I want to say thank you for finally having me on because we've been talking about doing this for like three or four years now. We have, and like we we we've gone through a couple of different games that we could talk about too, which is exciting. Uh, I feel like I feel like we've we've switched focus a number of times on our potential episodes and just never actually recorded this, which is really kind of strange. Yeah, it is kind of strange. I mean, I for everyone listening at home, I mean, Trev and I have had an ongoing dialogue about this podcast for since its inception, really, and. I will also note my podcast, Podside Picnic. Go listen to it. It's about mm-hmm. storytelling broadly. Started as sci-fi. We do lots of other things too. But it would not exist if it were not for this podcast because I met my co-host solely because my co-host Pete at Podside Pete on Twitter was a guest on No Cartridge. And you don't go looking like if you go find an episode, it'll be some other weirdo at at that point because he wasn't even Podside Pete at that point. Yeah, it was like at Wandle at that point. I think. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, no, it's it's like uh, it's it's a. Uh, I mean, we've been you and I have been talking forever. Like, I, it's it is it is strange to me that like that we haven't talked because on on pod because like it is we have had this ongoing dialogue forever. Uh, so it feels as if you've been on pod and I've been on your podcast, but uh, I guess we've just never like actually made this happen because we uh, probably because we talk so much off mic that it feels like it's not necessary <laughs> to schedule it on mic. That's true. We should just transcribe our years of text for your audience. There you go. That'll be nice. People will love that. <laughs> nothing, nothing in there people won't find boring or dated. <laughs> <laughs> but you're actually here to talk to me about something that uh, a lot of people are pretty interested in, um, which is uh, the the Witcher TV show or Witcher TV series. I don't know if you can even call it a TV series. It's a Netflix series now. It's like it feels feels like the old like uh, uh, it's not TV. It's HBO thing. Uh, makes some sense with 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 these Netflix shows since they like actually uh, I don't know in some ways very very much differ from TV. Um, but I don't I don't know if we need to talk about that or not. Um, uh, but yeah, we're talking about the Witcher TV show and the Witcher game, um, which I'll I'll just be clear off the top. I have not actually played the Witcher um, or the Witcher three, which is the what what people usually mean when they say the Witcher. Well, I I have man, I have so many thoughts about what you just said. Um, okay, first of yeah, all, <laughs> just, just head through all of them. Like well, I'm gonna through. start. I'm gonna start at the end with the the simplest thought, which is. You need to play Witcher 3, Trev. Like, I know you're a busy man, but come on. This okay. is one of the most important games of the last decade, easily. Um, by consensus, this is not me saying this. Uh, <laughs> and it's having a moment again because... It continues to have a moment all the time. Yeah, well, it's having a particular moment. I think it, I think it broke records for, like, a game that was X number of years, you know, after release for, like, sales. Yeah. I think it was, um, it was something along the lines of, like... It was, I forget what it was. It was something like it was the number one or like in the top five games downloaded or purchased. And it was when it was five or four or five years old, which is, I I mean, truly fairly surprising given that like, even if it's on sale, everything's always on some sort of Steam sale. So like it has some, some wild staying power. Yeah. And of course that this particular moment that it's having is due to the TV show, like you said, and I want to track back a little bit because you said, like, can we call it a TV show as a Netflix show? And then you made the HBO move, which makes sense. My A lot of my theses around Witcher, the TV show, though, revolve around how it's a throwback to the pre-Prestige TV era and how it breaks from Prestige TV and breaks with what we think of. Uh, obviously, it's like HBO and the sort of the genesis of original content on streaming platforms. And to be clear... Netflix is a lot of garbage, so there's not, like, everything Netflix does is some ambitious uh, prestige project. But I do think that the the popularity of Witcher and its sort of cultural centrality, and ironically the prestige it's accrued, is fascinating precisely because it rejects prestige TV in key ways. And then that's, yeah. Yeah, I think, like, the – 
the question that I'm I'm always kind of coming back to in terms of The Witcher, um, this is I've heard this before where like people will compare the show to uh, not just like pre prestige TV because like you'd see uh, it would make sense if people compared it to something like I don't know um, Buffy right like there's a there's a world in which like this represents the the kind of like early Joss Whedon y stuff where like it wasn't consistently i don't know well sketched out or or um the special effects weren't quite right uh but it always sort of produced this uh you know weekly monster of the week kind of thing that people tuned in for but like people are even saying it reminds them more of something like uh a, a Xena or a Hercules or something like that right like even even sort of a a level of schlock down from that in in a good way um I mean, are you willing to go that far? Do you think this is sort of like, uh, you know, like Deep Space Nine, Xena, Hercules, like Saturday morning fair? Or are is when you say it's pre-prestige TV, do you mean something different than that? So I actually think you nailed it. I'm glad you brought up Buffy because we actually covered Buffy this week on Podside Picnic. Oh, yeah. You're um, actually, yeah, you're because you're in Vampire Month. Yeah, we're doing Vampire Month on my show, and so we we did Buffy first, and I had not seen Buffy in many years, and, and uh, Pete and I watched some of the best Buffy episodes, and I think Buffy is in some ways the perfect comparison. Now, to be clear, Buffy is complicated because Buffy ultimately becomes the genesis for the Joss Whedon phenomenon, which would consume pop culture <laughs> after yeah. the fact, and it, the show, yeah, and Buffy changed a lot over its run um, and became a lot more... Self-aware. I think one of the key points we made about Buffy was that, like, the fact that she's a 17-year-old girl who goes out on patrol every night with a crossbow becomes a joke. Like, that that becomes a meta joke within the show when initially that was just the premise of the show, right? Um, but, like, I think that's the key reference point for Witcher because I don't think that Witcher is – Witcher can't quite go back. I don't, I don't know that we as a culture can quite go back to Xena. Um, mm-hmm. in, no. in, in certain ways. And, like, I, to be clear, I haven't seen Xena in a long time. But, like, there's a kind of – how to how to put this? Earnest hamminess is probably a par- a paradox, but it might be the key paradox here, which is that like uh, whatever whatever kind of awareness that the actors and the production crew and everyone else involved may have had what was going on with Xena, like the staging of it, it almost feels like sometimes the way that that's being delivered on screen, in my memory at least, harkens back to like fifties TV, like more it's at least, at least closer to fifties TV than it is to like the Sopranos. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I can understand that. I guess like the the distinction between Buffy and something like Xena, right, is like this this version of um I don't know, like earnestness that is Buffy is always trying to do something a little it's like always trying to outpunch its weight, right? Where you like when the show came out, that was the era of say something like Xena. So if you said like we're going to put out a, a show about a vampire hunter, uh it was understood that it would be sort of like a, a kind of nonsense show. And so like, you know, you get the Whedon phenomenon where like the dialogue and the direction and everything always is trying to um produce something like beyond that, right? Like it's always more than the sum of its parts. Whereas something like Xena or Hercules or all those things were, were hearkening back to stuff like Magnum PI or like hour long shows that was simply were there just to be hour long shows. And like, maybe they'd have one or two episodes that people would be like, Oh, I guess they hired some writers for that one. But mostly it was just like procedural. It was just filling a niche. Um, it's kind of interesting that like our version of schlock is never going to get back to, or ostensibly is never going to get back to that like pure, we're just filling a niche um, outside of, you know, ultra, ultra trite, like network TV. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably a really fascinating conversation to be had about what degree does something like to what degree and what form does something have to be schlocky to take us back there? I think that like some of these disturbingly uncanny Disney movies that are coming out now, like live actions of Aladdin and Lion King, like they at least (laughs) like there is a layer of like, but like it, that's something else. There's something sinisterly futuristic about those two. So this again, this is a whole other conversation. I feel like, but I think that the key point, like the thing about Xena, is Xena partakes in what had been the long-standing and unquestioned tradition of TV is trash, right? Yeah, you watch yeah. TV, it's trash. I mean, when <laughs> you and I were kids, Trev, when you and I were kids as millennials, like we were told TV is all trash. Watching TV rots your brain. That was the universal like uh, position 
Of, oh yeah, it absolutely you know, rots your brain for sure. That's that's, right. that's what that's what you're told all the time. And you're also being told that about like about blockbuster movies broadly. Like you're told that movies that we now consider extremely good, like I would say Aliens, mm-hmm. like you're like Aliens or movies that we look back very fondly at, like Predator or Terminator. Like the the line from our parents. I mean, I assume you and all the parents, your parents and all the parents that you knew, as well as all the ones that I knew, was like, that is garbage. It will rot your brain. Uh, don't at do best, that. Then Go read a worst, book. Yeah. Yeah, at worst, it will uh, it will cause you to uh, become violent. Yeah, and I mean, again, I'm doing kind of a hacky history of TV here, but, like, there's no, I think there's little doubt that Buffy was in many ways an antecedent. Like, it overlapped with the birth of Prestige TV, which was The Sopranos, right? Mm-hmm. Sopranos did take flight during Buffy's run. Um, but like Buffy's an antecedent to th- this current, like this current moment where it is assumed that TV not only does not need to be trash, it should not be trash. And the trashy shows, like all of the C- you know CBS procedurals, that's the real trash that boomers watch, right? Whereas we watch <laughs> something that's a lot better, right? Um, yeah, that's good. That's a good point. Like it, it and actually, this kind of like this, this sort of brings it back to uh, to something I think you're you, we were talking about before we recorded, where like. It's not necessarily that it's always a coding of like what is worth uh, your time and like what is worth your time, even when it's like, uh, uh, I don't know, even when it's uh, leisure, right? Like we're all like defensive of the stuff we watch and saying it's not trash. And then we're personally trying to make sure that we're not just consuming trash, that it's like filling some niche in our lives where it's like, oh no, this is trash that makes me think of this, or this is trash that fills this kind of like need for me as a as a media consumer or something of that like that right where like it's not you know I want to watch the witcher because um it's something that's on TV it's I want to watch the witcher because like not ju- it's not just something on TV it is something on TV that reminds me of this it recalls this experience it fills this role and like that's something that I think you know if you're just watching like Chicago Fire uh, you're not you're not thinking about you're living in the the TV is trash world. Yeah, I, I think that you unlocked it perfectly there, which is that um, what is the process of justification of how one uses one's time? And I think that Witcher is making a particular move that was not not as possible in the era not possible in the era when TV was assumed to be trash, which is it is saying it's taking a step farther and saying. You can justify this precisely because it is sort of carefully targeted trash. Mm-hmm. Like the move that Witcher makes is to say, yeah, okay, we're not trying to be the next Breaking Bad. We're not trying to be the next Sopranos. We have a, right. a budget that is comparable, but we're not interested in even being the next Game of Thrones because like, I think partly like partly benef- Witcher benefits from coming out the year 2019 that Game of Thrones finally crashed and burned and it's, and it's ending. <laughs> Everyone and people sort were just of like, agreed, yeah. <laughs> It's like this was this thing that Game of Thrones promised that the budgets and everything else would pay off. And it was like it's like you can have Game of Thrones promised the impossible, which is that you could have this sort of sprawling universe of fantasy lore that would feel like it would never need to end. And you could also have the full bore prestige TV. And I'm not sure that that's fully impossible, but certainly Game of Thrones did not achieve it in the end. Right. So here comes Witcher and the timing of Witcher is perfect. It's like, what if we just said to you the contract with the viewer is this will be schlock that you are wise to the, to the ways in which it's schlock. We're wise to the ways in which it's schlock. And its prestige will be mediated by its schlockiness. Like, because we can agree that we're both, like, equal partners here, because there's no deception involved, that itself generates prestige, the sort of firmness of the contract. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I totally agree. And, like, the the... Like, the, the act of that is also kind of, like, it ties into the game, too, where... Like the Witcher game, I remember when Witcher One came out, the the complaint about it was that it was too arcane or too weird or too hard or too sexualized. Like it was all it was like a weird kind of like, oh, this is a PC game. Like it's for weirdos who play PC games. Like, do not worry about The Witcher if you aren't like interested in PC <laughs> RPGs. And like over time, the games also like the CD Projekt Red. You know, obviously CD Projekt Red has like a ton of its own problems, but like. Uh, which I've talked about on many shows, but like the the marketing of CD Projekt Red did a very smart thing in taking Witcher Two and Witcher Three, and just like, especially Witcher Three, and just like basically saying like, yeah, actually this is just like an open world like, I use this word I'll steal it from you, swashbuckling uh, adventure, where like it's not about you're not playing a game that is you know 
super serious about itself. You're not playing a game that like you have to be like ultra careful about your hit points and stuff. Obviously it's difficult and obviously it'll have that, but like first and foremost, you're playing a game that's like a fun story about fun characters and like a, a crazy world where like the women are hot and the men are hot and everyone is just trying to fight monsters. Yeah. I, this is great, Trev. Like you're totally nailing the spirit of Witcher, which is like, I think both the Witcher 3, at least, I haven't played the previous ones, um, and the TV show sort of understand at a deep level, like, swashbuckling is the right word, and that it is not going to outthink itself in terms of, like, what, what, what are the terms of the adventure we want? It's like, on the one hand, Witcher is very interested in moral ambiguity, and so much of this is about the ways that Geralt exists in gray areas, also literally, because, like, he's in, like, you know, he's, he's very much a grayscale character, pale, <laughs> yes, silver yes, hair. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and, like, his, his like, most probably the most enduring lover, Yennefer, like, always wears black and white, which I think is hilarious. Um, so there, there's, like, there's this, you know, and, and everything in the, with the TV show and in the, especially the game, is, like, rigged to create moral ambiguity and to make you choose sides in a morally imperfect exchange. But ultimately, like, the point is not so much that that you need to sort of wallow in the intense moral complexity of this world, which is a morally complex world, but most of all, the world is meant to be exciting, stimulating, to generate the, generate chaos that you find entertaining. Whereas, again, the, the flaw of Game of Thrones, and I'm comparing in some ways a TV show to a game here, but bear with me, is that <laughs> Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones wants the grimdark complexity and tortured morality of its world to be the most interesting thing. And Witcher says, hey, you know what? That is a tool that lets us create storylines, both at the overarching level of like the main storyline of the game and of all of the individual quests. That is a tool that we can use. But really the point here is that Geralt rides around, has adventures, gets drunk, gets into bar fights, has a lot of sex with ageless, unbelievably gorgeous sorceresses. And by the way, I'm not just saying that, I'm not saying that indulgently. That's a major point of, of, of the story. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it, uh, it, well, I think what's funny about the way you're describing it too is like it reminds me a lot of, you know, this is something that I brought up haphazardly, but like I didn't, I thought it was a bad comparison. Now I'm kind of happy I made it. It, it reminds me of the way that uh, Star Trek works, which is like, you get a a very serious sort of like well thought out and you know more or less at different times, but like this thought out uh, framework. And within that thought out framework, it's like oh yeah, and we're just gonna tell some fun stories here. Some of them are gonna be more serious than others. Some of them are gonna be more sex- sexy than others. Some of them are gonna be more like funny than others. But like something like Star Trek: The Next Generation has this massive artifice, and then every single episode is just like, well, what if we like, we, we've sort of set this all up. Uh, and now we're just going to tell a story about like, what if, you know, the first, uh, the, the first mate got stuck on the hollow deck again, like Witcher sort of seems to be like dabbling in that a little bit where it's like, well, it, not every story has to be the story of like, you know, a monumental, uh, clash of powers. It could also be like, uh, Gerald's trying to like have sex with a hot lady and also fight a monster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and both the TV show and the game are comfortable being episodic in their mm. storytelling within, like, they, they they both have overarching main storylines. And in some ways, the flaw of the show is that it maybe uh, invests too much in that main storyline and not enough in Monster of the Week. Give me more Monster of the Week, Netflix. But um, <laughs> there's there's a fair amount of that, to be, to be fair. But, like, when I say episodic, um, obviously every open world game will sort of, uh, siphon itself off into side quests as you pass through a main story, and then you have options about how to pursue that, and that's kind of the definition of an open world in some ways. But that's a good way to describe it, actually. Yeah, I've never heard it. I've never heard a, an open world described like uh, that succinctly, but I think you're right, uh, particularly in terms of like uh, the idea that the side quests essentially structure uh, structure the game just as much as the main quest, just as like uh, kind of like pillars that set up uh the the stakes around the main quest. Yeah, totally. And I think Witcher 3 is one of the best as someone who enjoys open world games and especially enjoys Bethesda games, which I'm sure you've discussed on here a lot. I know you have. Yeah, they've um, come up <laughs> once or twice. Like I, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the way that Witcher like in Bethesda games famously or in even a, a much more scaled down open world, a less open world if you will, like Horizon Zero Dawn, um, many other games. Like, one of the major 
recurring devices in open worlds is factions that you can choose to mm. join, and they have mm-hmm. their own quest lines. Um, at least thus far in Witcher, I'm at level 18, and I guess I've visited most areas in the game. Um, like, there is that is not something Witcher is interested in. I think that's, that is particularly interesting, because like Witcher is much more interested in the autonomy of these quests, many of which are very carefully separated from the main storyline. And it is it is a game that invests very, very heavily in what is going to happen, what cutscenes are we going to generate, what moral tensions are we going to generate in a monster contract that you have absolutely no reason to do for role-playing purposes. It's not part yeah. of the faction. It's not part of the main storyline. There is no bigger... Point being, there is no bigger purpose to that quest that we've invested a ton into other than the quest itself that can be encountered as part of a swashbuckling adventure. Yeah, and I think, like, you're... You also end up looking at the game... And and the show, I guess, too, less as a role playing kind of experience and more as a story about a character. Which I mean, it's like a it's a I guess it's like a fairly um, fine distinction. But if you think about something like Game of Thrones, it's not a role playing show necessarily. But you also get to kind of put yourself as this like um, a thousand thousand mile observer on like a bunch of politics and like weaving uh, alliances and betrayals and stuff like that's the that's essentially like the promise of game of thrones is you're going to see like a lot of that going on um and then of course there's like the existential threat and all but uh, more or less it's it's like you get to watch a million things happening that uh will impact the world that that these characters exist in and and you get to sort of for 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 good or ill uh see how it all pans out um, whereas in Witcher, uh, in, in both the game and the show, um, you're just like, you're, you're committed to the Witcher. You're committed to Gerald. You're not, you're not like, you, you know, it's not a, uh, a thing where you get to pick, uh, and Bethesda is a good example. It's not a thing where you get to say like, well, I'm just kind of interested in what the Kajit are doing, or I'm just kind of interested in like what this particular guild is doing. You have to be interested in what Gerald is doing on some level because he's the, focus of the game. Like, I don't imagine there's a way to enjoy The Witcher if you, like, for whatever reason, are completely repelled by that character. Yeah, absolutely, because everything is focused around Geralt, and I would love to hear um, from, like, for instance, heterosexual women what it's like to play a game. (laughs) Well, I just, like, you know, I mean, a lot of games now go out of their way to have lots of flexibility around how character design, including especially gender, is one of the key things, right? And, like, that's been a trend in gaming over the last few decades to get to that point. And Witcher defies that and is like, no, like, you're Geralt, you're this dude, and if you're interested in, like, the sexual dimensions of your character, um, guess what? It's going to be an extremely heteronormative sex scene <laughs> from the perspective of a man. Uh, and that ha- You know, that happens a lot throughout the game. Um, it just... You know, those are quite, like, those, someone else who's more interested in those aspects of games could, like, unpack that better than me. I do think that you got on something interesting about Game of Thrones and what it's building towards the ties we were talking about earlier about the failure of Game of Thrones, which is that Game of Thrones fell into the trap of, like, of sort of middle-brow, coked-out Hollywood storytelling generally, (laughs) which is that it really wanted to have the most profound and interesting point of all time being constructed as an extremely corporate piece of art by people who are, you know, middlingly bright. But it had to have a huge point, right? And, of course, in so in trying to do that, it just fell apart in all, in all kinds of ways. But the key thing about <laughs> Witcher is I really don't think Witcher as a game, as a TV show, and probably not the books, I don't think Witcher's particularly interested in having any kind of point. <laughs> no, I mean, this is a game that, like, I, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Like, it's a game that I've heard talked about for years now and everyone talks about it and everyone says it's fun and like it is a well-loved game never do you hear um and here's why it's like an important game politically um people dabble a little bit i think with um uh like kind of like not queer but like uh maybe i don't know um a more sexualized gaze on 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 Gerald like the like the the fact like the scene uh, that opens the Witcher 3 famously of him like in the bathtub that's way too small and that's becoming that becoming like a thing where like it's always about him with his legs spread and 
in this bathtub with j- like just barely covering. I, I just uh, want to say, thir- thirty seconds later, you then see the naked body of the sorceress Yennefer, who's like unearthly gorgeous, it, and it's like it, right, yeah. I mean, like it's it, not it goes really, back to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing. Right, no, you're no, you're totally right. Like, there's nothing particularly like. Uh, um, how to say this? There's nothing particularly like uh, 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 I, I don't know, like um, risky about this image. The fact that you see Gerald uh, sexualized before you see Yennefer is just basically like an order of operations, as opposed to like actually saying something serious. And I don't think the game is tends to say anything serious. But I've seen people like point to this as like, well, they represent male sexuality and not just female sexuality and stuff. And I feel like. On some level, the lack, right, the lack of any sort of, like, major claim in, in these pieces, an intentional lack of any sort of major claim, like, aside from we're telling a fun story, um, has had people producing their own that does not quite make sense. Like, there's, I, I feel like there's an effort, and maybe even particularly with the TV show, to position it as an intentional work of, like, some sort of artistry trying to do something very particular that the show itself seems completely uninterested in. Well, I think you've hit on a really key distinction between the show and the TV show uh, and the game that could very well doom the show, which is that the show is a little bit more interested in, you know, politics broadly stated and I'll just say issues than uh, than the game is. The game is like resolutely not interested in that. Um, Well, the show is more so based on the books, unless I'm wrong, right? Right, but I also think like it's unmistakable that for all of the many good qualities that the ne- that Witcher on Netflix has that defy some of the prevailing trends in pop culture, I still think that there's like it it's sort of you can see the shadows taking shape of like what's going to be <laughs> sort of a little bit uh, somewhat clearer story to an extent of arguably good versus evil that there will be better and worse factions um you know that 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 the arc for characters like Yennefer is going to be less about like, like when someone on Twitter once said to me about the the Witcher books, for instance, and I haven't read them, but they were t- describing them to me when I was talking about the show and they were like, yeah, that's the spirit that this author has. It's like, now Geralt's fighting a troll. Oh, you want to know what a troll is? Fuck you. It's a troll. He's fighting it. Like, and, and like in the, in the show and in the book, like in the, in the game, for instance, like the character's like, here's the character, Yennefer. She's a really hot sorceress who does sorceress things. Oh, you want her to have like some moral political agenda? Like, fuck off. She just does what she wants. She's a cool sorceress. Like, that's, right, right. I mean, and, and you know, I mean, to be clear, Geralt does have like, sort of a sense of love and moral duty towards his adopted daughter, Syria, which drives the narrative forward, blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of love complexity because, of course, Geralt's had just far too many wonderful lovers. And, okay, what I want to focus in on is this, though. Um, do, do, sorry, Trev, do you, mind if I, do you mind if I break down the politics of the game to help our audience a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I hope you would because, like, the, the thing that I've always thought about The Wild Hunt uh, as, like, the focus of Witcher 3 is that it really worked because it it kind of went away from the attempts at politics in Witcher 1 and 2, particularly Witcher 2, which everyone liked, but I think, like, no one was all that interested in, like, the Assassin of King stuff. So, uh, and I mean, please correct me if people were super interested in that. Um, that's the one I'm, I'm least historically up on. But the, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. I want to hear how, how the politics work in this game. So I think this this is the really key point. Um, the two biggest factions among mortals, the two biggest factions among humans, are the Nilfgaardian Empire, which is invading the northern realms where the game is set. And Nilfgaard is an authoritarian, um, sort of quasi-theocratic, highly ordered, you know, sort of Germanic, kind of like you get Prussian overtones, um, empire they're doing their thing and they're very much an abs- you know they're an absolutist empire around the sort of the corpus of their emperor in theory at least it gets more complicated but like they're an extremely disciplined army very hard to stand against they're sort of the sweeping imperial force in this game their main enemy left on the map is uh Redania which is commanded by a guy named King Radavid who has consolidated power in the northern realms by uh, invading some of his allies very game of thrones move and Radovid is portrayed <laughs> as a madman. So, like, the, the Nilfgaardian Empire, Emperor is this dour, um, you know, imposing figure. And Radovid is, he is much more of a wild card. He's portrayed as basically going insane throughout the story. Um, you know, one of his most famous acts across the Witcher lore is, like, 
prying out the eyes of the powerful sorceress who mentored him when he was a young man. Um, that's brutal. Yeah, that's, that's very that's very grimdark. Nice do no, it's yeah. not nice. Although I mean, again, like everyone in these stories has their reasons, right? It's a very complex uh, tapestry of of grievances that goes on. But I guess the point I'm going to make is this: like we're initially the game initially presents you with like the Nilf Guardians are called the Black Ones. They're the Imperial invading force in the lands you first you first get to. They're framed as the bad guys. Like, clearly, if you've played other games or read your fantasy sci-fi novels or whatever, you're like, okay, this is the evil empire. This is the galactic empire. All right, bad guys, got it. Then you go to Redania, and it turns out, oh, Redania is run by a madman. And guess what everybody in Redania is obsessed with doing? This madman has generated this huge witch hunting force. Okay. That's going around doing uh, pogroms against non-humans because there's there's still some remnant populations of elves and dwarves and halflings who are persecuted but still exist. Um, and also like, you know, burning <laughs> sorceresses and mages at the stake in public and torturing people that then like with great relish, these are like the, uh, the B movie, witch hunters from central casting. It's like, Oh, well, these guys aren't <laughs> particularly, I don't like either. these guys much more. <laughs> right. right and, yeah. then, and then the third major, there's other, there's other political entities like Skellige, which by the way, the game really wants you to like Skellige because Skellige is the coolest thing ever. It's a hybrid of like Irish mythology and Irish attitude with, like, Norse mythology, which is, like, the coolest, like, it's an unfair advantage for Skellica to have, because it's just like, come yeah. on, these guys are, these guys are really cool. But, um, and they're, like, the wild, car- they're, like, pirates, they're the iron, like, the ironborn from Game of Thrones. But anyway, okay. you have the Wild Hunt, which is the other major entity for narrative purposes, and the Wild Hunt are just wraiths, kind of like na- the Nazgul, and their yeah. thing is, their agenda is that they're really bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because... It, it like honestly when you're describing it it doesn't remind me like the especially i guess the way you're describing the politics in the game it doesn't remind me of game of thrones or or you know uh buffy or anything like that it reminds me of like old pulp novels where like you'd get something like uh like the richard stark novels i talked a little bit about with um with uh, uh no chorus uh uh he's no chorus on twitter but uh sean of uh, all units um where like the the or Sean Tiernan, excuse me of all all units like the the Richard Stark Parker novels are always like this where like there is a massive sort of like hierarchy of of like you know needs and politics and stuff going on in the, in the background but mostly you know that because you live in America at the time these books are published and you could just kind of make those inferences your main character uh uh Parker is just going to be a guy who wants to get revenge and brutally hurt people. And it's like, you know, once you pick up the basic uh, broad strokes in The Witcher, it's like, okay, yeah, like your guy, Gerald, is not as super interested in all of this. Like, here's what's going on. Um, Navigate it as you will, but uh, mostly just enjoy all the crazy stuff. Yeah, and I mean, to be clear, a lot of what Geralt does in all the course of all these momentous events, because again, Nevclar has invaded the north. There's a massive war brewing, and there's also you know wraiths running around who might end the world in a kind of Ragnarok esque scenario. Sure. While this like, is going on, what our hero Geralt does, he doesn't go to the um, the Greybeards and get the power of the thumb to defeat the invading dragons. He, I mean, he does his version of that because he's searching for his you know uh, essentially adopted daughter Siri early on and that's all very complicated and that involves all the sorceresses and like that's very convoluted and involves the wild hunt and it's it's interesting but it's just like that's mostly an excuse to move him to different parts of the map and most of what he does day to day and, and to be clear Witcher's gameplay does a great job of this um I, I I suspect from what I've I haven't played I'm not a huge games aficionado so my my like span of games that I've played is not huge but I get the sense that there are very few games that have given people as vast a map that they have to sort of traverse the way that you do in Witcher, which means, like, you spend a lot of time in this game, no matter what, no matter how you want to play it, riding on horseback through this world, and it is big. Yeah. Um, and, well, yeah so, like, that's, and that's one of the – I mean, you're absolutely right. That's one of the things that I think is is most – is most, like, a signature thing about The Witcher 3 is how big – and, like, I mean, especially when you factor in the two DLCs, um, how expansive it all is. Yeah, and part of what the the size means is that, like, you always have a million sort of main quest things you're supposed to do. You always have a million imperatives weighing on you. But one of the ways that those imperatives, which tend to which overlap and kind of burden you in a in a what could be a frustrating way, but I think one of the really clever things is you pile up all of these different things you're supposed to do to find Siri or whatever, and then you then you sort of think, hmm, 
well, I just logged on. Am I going to work on finding Siri, or am I going to ride to the next town over that I haven't been to yet and go to the inn and get in a bar fight and find out what adventures I have over there? And just the natural entropy of the game is to say, like, well, let's go to that town over there where I can see that there might be some quests for me, and on the way I might fight some bandits. And when I get there, who knows? I might meet a sorceress I haven't seen in 20 years, and we might have a steamy love scene. And, like, all these things are constantly like, – that's – the entropy of the game is such is truly like a process of like weighing you down with things you're supposed to do, but very much also at the same time nudging you away from that to just go have adventures. Like it encourages you to be irresponsible in a way that is not unrecognizable from other open world games, but like it is just fascinating to me how much the game wants you to be this delinquent um, character. And that, that 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 dovetails very much like the gameplay then dovetails very much with like the cutscenes and the sort of more linear storytelling, which is that. It's all. It's the process of Geralt re-encountering people, many of whom are lovers or friends, and all of them sort of had the same wry complaint. It's like, where the hell have you been for the last 10 years? And he's like, I'm sorry, I was doing other things. Can we be friends or lovers again? And they're like, yeah, whatever, man, I love you. Um, but it's <laughs> this like... How, this is who I am, I want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like just a general theme of like, Geralt is an incredible delinquent. He's a deadbeat. Um, <laughs> and he's always out of money. <laughs> but that totally makes sense. Like, it, it, it's funny because I know that the show is kind of like an unlikely success in some ways. Because uh, when when it came out, I think most everyone was fairly sure they wouldn't like it. Where like the you know it was there was a lot of stuff go, not going in its favor. Where people were like, well, Henry Cavill seems like a weird casting choice. Like a Netflix show about The Witcher seems like seems like it'll be terrible. Video game ad- ad- adaptations are usually always very bad. But like. The the one thing that we probably should have been able to guess was that, like, the idea of someone having a central quest and then constantly being redirected into other things is, like, the oldest TV plot uh, – yeah, TV plot generator in the book. Where, like, the idea of a hero's quest and you're just like, yeah, um, I mean, it's like, it's like have gun, will travel or, like, whatever, right? Where, like – or Car 54, Where Are You? The, the old, old shows where, yeah, you have your heroes and they have a basic idea or basic thing that they need to pursue and there's like there's a thing at the end of the end of the story that they need to achieve or, or defeat or whatever. But like, oh, look, they just wandered into this town and uh, or they wandered into this uh, crime and, oh, this is awfully interesting. Like maybe we'll just spend the, the next episode just detailing this weird serial killer they ran into or this weird like... A varmint who they have to have to kidnap like it's it it feels like yeah of course the witcher is going to work as a tv show because it's exactly what tv like uh, serialized tv has been uh especially before we have had this like weird moment of prestige um you know going back to to the ways that you know tv first found its legs yeah yeah and i think that you kind of nailed the ways that one of the kind of uncanny things about The Witcher is that I think these books began in the 80s. It's been a while since uh, Sapkowski, the Polish fantasy writer, first started writing these. And again, I haven't read them. But um, one of the things that like ports very nicely across forms, for instance, is that apparently in the original books, Geralt does something that, that he does in the show and the game too, which is like he's constantly taking potions to like boost his powers. Which like it's like the writer anticipated things he'd have to do in the game world, which is just hilarious to me. Um, it is funny, especially because when he like famously when they asked for the rights for the ga- for the books for the game, he was just like, "Yeah, fine, whatever. This is gonna be a disaster." Like I, he never thought the game was going to be very successful, and so like the apparently like it has been a, a point of contention. And, you know, I, I don't have the in front of me, so if I get any of the details wrong, I apologize. But like apparently, this has been a point of contention between him and CD Projekt Red because he just, you know. He basically sold the rights and said, like, you're not going to be able to do this, but I'm happy to take your money. Yeah, um, I think they renegotiated their deal ultimately because they didn't want to have him going around saying, like, I got screwed. <laughs> reasonable. Good good move on their part. They're swimming in money. They can afford it. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, yeah, he also like, – he, he, he did that and then wasn't expecting a game, which is wild to me. <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I don't wonder, like, what the time frame that those rights were sold on and, like – you know, was there – I mean, when that when the rights were sold, was there, like, such a thing as, like, Eastern European studios making titles that became huge AAA bestsellers in the in the U.S.? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't I, – I don't think so. Uh, not Eastern European studios or if there were – if that if there were, it was a very rare thing. Um, I mean, I think it's important – Still awfully rare. 
I think it's important when discussing Witcher to, to note that, which is that like uh, Poland, this such a big, this is such a big deal in Poland where the books originate and where CD product CD Project Red is from. That like the Polish ambassador gave Witcher two uh, a copy of it to Obama. <laughs> <laughs> just because I'm like, sure he played it instantly too. I mean, you know, just yeah. like right in. Absolutely. You know, M- Michelle was scowling at him uh, during the nude scenes or whatever. Um, yeah, it just. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's like it. it it's Eastern Europeanness. Like again, I'm not going to wade too much into my, uh, you know, sort of. Eth- eth- ethnological science theories. You don't about- bog us down with your race science, Connor. Yeah. It's just gonna, we don't have enough time on this podcast. But I do think that sort of like the wry fatalism of the game and the fact that it sort of like resolves many of its deeper moral tensions in favor of sort of uh, hedonism and play, um, mm-hmm. both at the level of storytelling and actual gameplay, is like it. It's something that I at least associate with it with narrative traditions where there is sort of a sense of like, well, fuck it, things are going the way they're going, and we're just gonna make the best of it. Um, it's another way that it's it's different than Game of Thrones because I mean George R. R. Martin is is so much a uh, a Western storyteller where it's like everything in the world of Game of Thrones you know there's there's oh you know like the 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 selling point is always yeah anything could happen man like your your favorites could be dead tomorrow like that's that's what Game of Thrones is all about but like ultimately there has to be some sort of moral conclusion like there you know he can promise it all he wants but like inevitably and this is how the show ended up there's some sort of moral conclusion where like if the people who were right or who were like just didn't win then on some level there would be a promise of them winning in the future whereas something like the witcher or um you know more recently something like pathologic 2 there's no it feels very much like yeah like this could all go bad like that that's just like how stuff happens in the world like this could this could be a disaster you, they, there's no real morality or like anything like that things go things go wrong all the time and that is a very like it feels very eastern european as opposed to western yeah absolutely i mean i think i'll go back to like my critique of the sort of coked out hollywood middle brow storytelling of like <laughs> we need to make we're going to have a profound point Um, And those of us who come from uh, more literary backgrounds, Trev, like you and I, um, we always look at that. We're very wary of that when it crops up where it's like we've got this huge budget to create something that has real, you know, that that, like its distinctiveness will be based on how much moral force it has and how how much of like an urgent point it can make. And we're like, well, I mean – are you really going to – and I think that like – Well, Well, I just – Well, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, it. for me, where I land on this is I don't go... So games are more complicated for me because I think games are the vanguard of narrative art in a way that I personally don't care if TV is. And I go to TV for something <laughs> entirely... I go to TV for something much lower investment. And I go to... Like, TV is probably the form that I most go to for pure entertainment personally. I know a lot of people disagree with me on that now. But that's where that's where I'm at. And I think partly just because I don't think the form. I guess I agree with the Kushbaum take. I don't think the form lends itself to innovation nearly as well as we hope it would. But what I were also you think say? people say they're interested in going to TV for aesthetic um, satisfaction uh, more than they actually are. Which is like I, I have our mutual friend uh, Eric Hain and I were talking about um, Succession this way, where like he tweeted something about Succession, where he's like, "Yeah, I like Succession. Like I don't." really understand what you guys are all talking about with it. It's, it's a good show. It's, it's just the show. <laughs> and like, I was like, yeah, no, you're right. Like it's, I like it cause it's well, well acted. And he was like, no, yeah, it, it totally is. It's just like people act as if it's like this, like vast store of leftist thought. And he's right. Like people do act that way, but ultimately it's just a fun show. Like it's very well written. It's very entertaining. It's fun to watch. But I think there has to be this veneer of aesthesis where um, so people can say like, oh yeah, I'm watching this TV. Again, going back to the first thing we talked about, the TV's trash is what we grew up with. You have to have a thing where it's like, no, it's not trash. Actually, it's very important and and I'm getting my artistic uh, edification from it uh, more than any other form. Um, you have to like, you have to be willing to protest very much about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the the discourse around TV has become so 
impenetrable to me for that reason. I, I've yeah. become, unfortunately, I'm a version of a, of a go read a book guy. <laughs> I'm I'm that type of dude. You may have heard You're of that version. type of well, guy you, on Twitter. You did start a podcast about reading books, so I think. Despite you branching into other stuff, I think uh, you and Peter definitely read a book, guys. We are. Although I will say to your listeners, we also cover other media, TV, film, and video games on Podside Picnic, which you can listen to right now. Sorry. Um, Yeah, you should. Uh, No, I, I, I think, I think there's a, I think there's a some some audience overlap, but there should be more. Uh, But yeah, no, it's it's. um, I mean, like, you're right to say that. I mean, video game writing is different than than TV writing. I'm, I'm actually kind of like working through this a little bit in uh, an article I'm writing on um, uh, Kentucky Route Zero, which is a game you should play. Um, it's like five hours long, so you should just go go get it next time you have 25 bucks. But um, I, I mean, you, Connor, the audience should also play it. But um, <laughs> uh, but like one of the things like I'm grappling with in that is it feels different as a narrative piece. It feels better than most games I've played. And I keep wondering, like, well, is that because it is a video game or because it's not, like, a, you know, there, there aren't, like, it's, it's more like an adventure game. Is it like a book? Is it like a TV show? And I think, like, one of the things I'm coming to, to grips with is it's doing, it's, like, performing the promise of video game writing in a way that actually works. And seeing that in action reminds me of what we've talked about a lot of times, about The Witcher, about, like, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, about a lot of stuff, where, like, the the idea of this feels like a place where if you were to hire like really good writers, you could do something really special. Uh, just the form itself does lend itself to some kind of I don't I don't know if it's the interaction or not. I've never been able to come to terms with that. But like there's some germ there that feels kind of unique. Well, I mean, as speaking as a layman, this is your, this is your video games podcast, and I'm not an expert on video games. I do think though, from where I stand. Interactivity is the sort of special aesthetic trump card that games have in the narrative arts landscape. We all agree on that. And I think beyond that, though, we're in an interesting cultural slash economic moment in my mind for video games because so much of the terms – this is – you might totally disagree with this. You might have had guests that have, that have directly contradicted this. But forgive me for saying from where I sit – as someone who likes to play AAA console games and not a lot else, I know, boo, boo. But um, <laughs> I have played I have played some indie games in my life. But uh, you know, I like you. <laughs> um, I do think that it is heartening to see that we are at least for the moment in an era where the massive corporate behemoths in that space they are competing on aesthetic terms in a way that is just like so far from being the case in film. I think it's a lot less the case in TV than we want to believe that it is. Um, right. I mean, TV, I think one of the things that, I mean, one of the reasons that it's so interesting to think about, I mean, one of the reasons The Witcher is such a useful frame for this too, is that like TV and games are really fun to think about side by side because TV and games both had to come from the aesthetic reputation of these are total wastes of time that no smart person should ever waste them waste their time on unless they're making money making it right like it's not it's like if you my poor mother uh who you know it's very proud of me very 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 lovely woman nothing against her but um you know one of one of the one of the saddest moments of her life was when uh, a friend's mom talked me out of becoming a computer programmer and like the that was when i was like 12 you know like <laughs> i don't know if i would have gone and actually done it but in her mind i i stopped because i was talked out of it I don't think she would have necessarily been sad had I been able to be talked out of being a critic of video games or a thinker about video games. The production, and the same with TV, like if you produce TV and make money off of it, people are fine with that. It's considering TV forever. That's where the danger lies. I think both forms have to grapple with that and say like, yeah, like, no, we're doing real stuff now. I know that you think it's not just that we are generally schlocky like film or uh, that it's it's uh, it's we're we're always edifying like novels. It's that we're never anything but a waste of time and junk food. We're doing something different now, and the way that they've gone about it differently is I don't know if it's instructive, but you're totally right. And, and I haven't really thought about it until tonight. It's it's an interesting uh, comparison. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that 
what fascinates me about Witcher on Netflix and Witcher 3 is that not even so much the difference between the two. It's the way that the two complement one another. And I'm also fascinated at some point to go back to the books to see where the genesis of this lies. But for whatever set of reasons, I think we've unpacked some of them on here. Um, this particular material adapts well across media in a way that I think is quite unusual. Um, and, you know, there there must be some essential lessons we can draw from that because something about the way that Witcher modul- modularizes quests, the way that the momentum of the storytelling spins you off into the openness of the world, the way that it is situated in a very vast landscape of lore that raises issues but also does not try to coalesce into a point. Um, yeah, that's a really all good of, way of putting it. Yeah, all of these things are, I think, very very worth studying if you're interested in how, and in, in, I think in, in the portability of stories across different media and just generally the synthesis of, like, where games can match up with other parts of culture, which I think will become an increasingly uh, interesting and important part of how games work. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so let me ask you this. Um I, before I let you off the hook on The Witcher, because you're you're 18 hours into The Witcher, 12 hours into The Witcher, you said, which is uh, probably uh, more than that. But I'm only level 18 because I play a lot. Of oh, flight. level 18. That's what you said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in, I, many people are saying you are like little baby. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder. I, I do wonder if you're going to get to uh, what is it? Blood and wine? Is that the is that the vampire uh, DLC? Um, I don't know. For, you for be, your vampire, you probably. Sp- you're probably spoiling uh, what that what that is for me, but yeah, there I can't is a possibly be spoiling. It has like it like the the picture of it is just like <laughs> Gerald drinking blood on a skull throat or something. <laughs> it's pretty. I, so we're not. I don't know. If we're, gonna, we're not going to do Witcher for Vampire Month, but uh, why do you ask? We could have. <laughs> we could. Yeah. Perhaps. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, like I I I do. Sorry if I spoiled that for you. I didn't think that that was uh, anything fine, that could be spoiled. But no, you're angry. I can tell. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I am curious. So, like, what is what's your favorite part of the game so far? Like, this sort of goes into something we were talking about before, which is like, you know, this is a game that is very focused on cutscenes and plot development and stuff like that, um, as well as just like personal exploration. If you want to think about it as a dialectic, you even could, which is like the totally free, you know free roaming quality of, of the, the character and the totally kind of like on the rails quality of, of Gerald as the, the, the main guy. Um, but what has been your favorite part of the game so far? Like what is, what is the thing that you feel most good doing in, in Witcher three that keeps you coming back to it? I'm going to throw you a wild card answer here that will not tie in anything we've said previously to be quite frank with you. Probably the single thing I've enjoyed most in Witcher three is playing Gwent. Okay. Is that that's the card game element, right? Yeah, that's the. See, that, uh, means, that means that you are not as much. You're 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 lying about not being a gamer because almost every gamer in history is uh, basically like when they're given a card game as a side thing. Uh, you have a community of like mostly gamers who are like, this is the only thing I care about in the game now. Um, I used to care about Final Fantasy VIII. Now I just care about the card game they added in it. Was like, so Gwent. What do you like about it? What are you good at it? I I am quite good at it. Although I don't think that the AI, um, there are some very there are some like the, the AI is not very powerful playing Gwent, but like some can of the decks are Gwent stronger against people. Yeah, I mean, there's like an app you can download and stuff that I have not. I'm not going out into the world, so like, I'm very afraid it would happen to me if I go out into the world and play Gwent because especially when it's like, uh, you know, when you have when you have a free to play game that's going to make you like. Buy cards for your virtual deck. That's like a recipe for disaster for me, and that gets to the heart of why I like Gwent, because I do have the personality of someone who would get who would who would and has been in the past very into real life trading card games. I was like an exceptionally good Pokemon player when that was okay. the thing, like playing in my local league and things like that, and I played Magic as well. And it's like I love those things. I love to just get incredibly dorky about those that minutia. I also, the way that I live and my priorities, I can't let myself spend, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars on magic cards. 
<laughs> and so, are, are you kidding? You're not gonna you're not gonna take out a load to get a, a serious Gwent deck, you know? <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, I think when I first downloaded this game, someone on Twitter replied to me. They were like, "Witcher Three has probably cost has literally cost me hundreds of dollars because it got me into Gwent, and then I started playing Gwent online. I was buying cards for my Gwent deck, and I was like." I have to avoid doing that. Uh, so <laughs> that's such a good answer, though. It's like it's such a it's such a good answer for what we've been talking about too. Where like the like the quality of this game is such that like it's this massive sprawling epic, right? That's what it's always laid out to be. And and I mean, there are a lot of games that get critiqued for this. Skyrim is like this, and then you're just like, well, but the main quest is depressing, and no one likes to play it. Um, People like the main quest in Witcher. People like all this stuff in Witcher, right? Um, but the thing that you, ad, an admitted fan of the game and its narrative, uh, and the style of its narrative, the thing you like the most is the most uh, wander into a bar and find something to do part of it of all time. <laughs> it's just like a good distillation of why of why the game works. Yeah, man. I will not dispute any of that. And in fact, I'm so I'm so excited about this now that whenever we do sign off, I'm probably gonna go play some Gwent against somebody. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna learn the the rules of Gwent, and then uh, because I'm sure you're better at it than me, I'm going to just learn the rules and then coach you through your Gwent career. So um, you know, you know what I think, Trevor. I think that you would get hung up on uh, one of the key points of Gwent, which is that most often, not always. This is this is the fine distinction, but most often in Gwent, you want to throw the first of the three rounds. Just to bleed mm. your opponent's deck, and I think that you're too much I'm of a. I think you're too virtuous that. to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. Well, it's it's not even that. It's just that my brain doesn't let me. I'm fine. I'm fine playing dirty tricks to win games, but like, it's it's like um, this is great game called. Uh, you probably really like it actually, based on what you just said. Uh, so you should go play it. It's cheap on Steam, uh, and you'd waste a ton of time on it, and but you wouldn't have to pay any money. Uh, called Slay the Spire, um, which is like a, a card game, basically. Um, and one of the tricks in Slay the Spire is you just are supposed to get as few cards as possible uh, and, like, you know, remove cards in your deck so you know which cards are coming, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, like, I'm just such a sucker for, like, oh, that card seems good. Or, like, oh, I bet I could win using this. Like, my brain just goes to total infant mode when I get into card games. <laughs> oh, man. Like, that You're supposed to win here, not I, lose. I called it, Trev. I knew you'd have that problem. There's actually a great... It t- you, the, yeah. the whole Gwen thing t- ties into a great cutscene in Witcher, which is where the Mad King Radovid, when you first meet him, in this game at least, he's playing chess by himself in a tavern that you didn't expect him to be in. And he's like, he gives this unhinged speech about how the reason he enjoys chess is because chess is all about the art of sacrificing your own pieces. And mm. that is what Gwent is all about. Gwent is all about mm. the art of how much can you let your deck, let yourself bleed before you really start to try. <laughs> it's tough, man. I'm, I'm better at it in chess because at least in chess, it's like, well, that's what everyone has to do all the time. You can't not do that. Like, you, There's no way to play chess by like having a... I'm sure there is, but like as a normal person, you can't just play chess by having a full on, you know, I'm going to capture your king kind of thing. You have to think a little differently. But uh, I do think it's pretty funny to th- <laughs> that I'd be bad at Gwent for the same reason I'm bad at almost every collectible card game. Like, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just too excited. It, uh, the story I always tell whenever I talk about collectible card games is I, I played uh, I played a lot of this Marvel collectible card game called Overpower when I was a kid. And uh, there was one serious, like, big deal attack in um, in Overpower, which was, like, if you had the Human Torch, uh, every char- every hero had, like, you played four heroes, and every hero had 20 damage, uh, or 20 hit points, basically. And so, like, if you had the Human Torch, you, were, you had the possibility of casting an 11-point hit, um, which is huge. It's just, like, a big deal. You could really, really, like... Uh, get an advantage it was uh you know the most powerful card um and so i made a deck like based completely around doing that because i was like 11 is a lot of hit points and i'm gonna win this and when i cast it the other person cast something that was just like immediately um uh just like countered it right like like you do in card games (laughs) you just have things that counter big attacks um and that was it. And the rest of my deck was useless, and I lost. I like I couldn't cry. <laughs> I was just like it was so. I was so. I was so ready to do it, and I like put the card down. They're like, all right. They just like dodged it. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is, I'm just not good at this. 
I'm sorry. That's really funny, Trev. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it is. It, uh, don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Um, well, I'm. Uh, this is great. I um. Any, any. Do you have any like recommendations or thoughts for the audience in terms of if they want to get into? I mean, most of the audience is already there, but if they want to get into like The Witcher or this is one of this is one of two final questions I'm going to ask you. The first is if they want to get into Witcher, the game or TV series. Any any hints as to uh, how they should do that? So not for the series because I think it's it's you know it's quite straightforward on Netflix. I will say like just bear with the first few episodes. Which the the thing that the show does that's most annoying in its first season is it thinks it's really being clever by having three different timelines and not telling you. Oh, and yeah, but you can pick up on that pretty quick. Yeah, just ignore that. Like, the thing about the rule about <laughs> Witcher generally is, like, you can choose to just ignore a lot of shit if you want. And that's, like, just ignore some of the big structural questions in this in the first season and just dive into it and enjoy what's on the screen. That's my advice for that. Um, for the game, like, like my sort of down and dirty tips for, like, starting off a Witcher game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Spent a lot of time on Gwent. Yeah, so Gwent, I, honestly, I do think this is something I said to Pete when we recorded on this, which is my, my co-host, because, like, he had skipped over Gwent entirely, and I was like, how could you? And he's like, all right, I'll get into it. And I'm like, no, you can't get into it now when your character's, <laughs> at the, you know, at a higher level because, like, you've missed getting all the damn cards and building your deck. Like, you don't know. You know nothing, Pete. So I would say. <laughs> so angry at Pete. <laughs> Podcast <was> like, <laughs> is over. <laughs> pretty much. It's just like, so, yeah, I mean, if you're interested in Gwent, you know, be delicate. Like, that's actually a great point. Like, there's all kinds of sort of standard gaming advice for Witcher that would apply. Like, I would say, like any uh, like any role playing game, be attentive towards your gear and realize that that's probably the single most pivotal thing as far as like how difficult quests are going to be. Is like, mm-hmm. is your gear up to the task? Um, that's pretty standard role playing game stuff. But like, the Gwen thing is, as I've said it since said by others, like. Play abs. Seek out and play absolutely every every Gwent playing character you can. Get as many cards as you can, and that's what will make the game fun. Like if you just try to stumble into the occasional Gwent game, you will be bamboozled and it won't be fun at all. If you pursue it, like you're the most maniacal fourteen year old building a magic deck, uh, it'll be a lot more fun. So that's <laughs> okay. All right, yeah, sounds yeah. good. And uh, last question, you. You started off Podside Picnic as like sort of a, a sci-fi uh, initiate. You, nothing, you don't, you didn't know that much about it. You knew like what you liked, basically. Um, now, what would you say? What would you say is like the most uh, not underrated? What advice would you give to anyone trying to get into sci-fi? Where where should they start? And like. Where off the beaten track should they start? So not like, oh, start with Asimov or start with this or start with that. Like, that doesn't seem to be the Pete way uh, in terms of him being your sci-fi mentor. Like, where, where, would, you, where would you start? What have you learned? Uh, can you give people some tips as to, like, where to start? And maybe even, if you want, an episode of your podcast that will align with that. Yeah. So that's a complicated question. because Always, a lot of we, yeah. A lot of Only. what we have covered. <laughs> yeah. A lot of what we have covered on Podside Picnic has been very classic and central texts like Neuromancer or Left Hand of Darkness, which I both I recommend both of those. And I think that, to be frank, um, if you're a literary reader who is interested in fantasy and sci-fi, the name that looms above all as far as who you should go to first is still Le Guin. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. the beaten path at all, but like The Dispossessed and Left Hand of Darkness um, as the two standouts in the Hainer cycle, like... If you're, again, if you are averse to fantasy and sci-fi, I would say go there and see if you still are. But that's not an answer to your question, Trev. I would say to answer your question, <laughs> um, I also want to say, again, to plug my show, like, we began as purely sci-fi, and now we kind of range widely. We call ourselves a show about the literature of the fantastic, and we are doing vampires this month. Um, we have something for everyone. It's fun for the whole family on Podside Picnic. Anyway. Go enjoy it. Yeah, Definitely. Thank you, man. I will finally answer your question and say I think the most underrated wildcard text that we've read thus far that I'd recommend is a book called um, Voice of the Whirlwind by Walter John Williams, who is one of Pete's favorite writers. And I'm sad to say that Voice of the Whirlwind is no longer in print under traditional means, but it will do a print-on-demand thing via Amazon if you ask for it. That's pretty good. And I think Voice of the Whirlwind is necessary because it is profoundly influential. You can tell immediately upon cracking it open that, like, it had a huge influence on Altered Carbon. In fact, 
such a huge influence on Altered Carbon that I'm a little bit miffed at Richard K. Morgan for that and for other reasons. But like, the, I think that he pillaged Walter John Williams in ways that are like uh, that I think are a little bit shameful to be honest. But like Walter John, like Wizards of the Whirlwind is one of the earliest like successful cyberpunk novels. Uh, came out not long after Neuromancer. Um, mm. Has a lot of sort of Zen warrior things going on. A lot of reincarnation, resurrection things going on. Just a very interesting story about being a kind of meditative warrior in this, you know, space operatic cyberpunk world. Um, and again, flies very far into the radar these days. Also in a similar vein, Ofuyuchi Hotline um, by John Varley was one that we read that was huge in the late 70s and has, and has become a lot, little bit more obscure over time. Um, but I think Voice of the Whirlwind is my is my number one recommendation. And as always, come to our show and we will continue to give you more interesting recs as time goes on. They even have a Discord. The Discord's good too. We do have Discord. Yeah, we have a Discord for patrons. So, <laughs> uh-huh. um, wow, yes. <laughs> I figured they'd find that out once they. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But uh, you know, Podside Picnic patrons. Uh, well, <laughs> it's uh, worth your five bucks to become a to to be on the Discord. It's fun. Yeah, I like to think it is. Honestly, I say this as a veteran of different online chat spaces. Um, our Discord is one of my favorite all-time spaces. It's a really nice little community. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate all the plugs from Trev. Uh, and hey. it's – look, man, it's honestly just a huge pleasure to finally be on your well, show. Yeah, now, and now we can just, like, do six or seven of these, I think, probably in the next few months because <laughs> uh, now that we've done the first one. I feel like we could just rattle off the rest. Hey, I'm here whenever, man. I have I have thoughts, and honestly, the game. Have you talked about? Have you done Horizon Zero Dawn? I don't think you told me if you did. Have you? Uh, no, I never actually did Horizon Zero Dawn on here. Okay, Trev. Uh, imagine me putting hand on your shoulder right now I just and saying, <laughs> like, Witcher Three. Fine, like that has been covered so much. You don't actually have to. Like, I think you should play. It. You don't have to play it because clearly you know enough about it already. I really think that Horizon Zero Dawn is like a must-play for anyone who has PS4. So okay, at some right, point right. we got to talk about that, my man. Okay, well you got it. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a hawk to you for for playing Horizon Zero Dawn for a long time now. So I will, I will, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Word. All right, well, thanks, man. man. Yeah, no, thanks for being on. This is great, and uh, uh, talk to you soon. Cheers, dude. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash nocartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.